going to spend um, a few moments praying together. We're going to use the words that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to pray and use these words to pray for ourselves and to pray for our country um, and to pray for our church family. So why don't we bow our heads and uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you as children dependent upon you, our heavenly Father. Lord, you're the God who dwells in heaven above, the God who lacks nothing, the God who lacks no wisdom, no power, no strength, no knowledge. You're the God who has all things. And so we come to you in confidence because you invite us to come as your precious children. And we come to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, please let it be that your name would be seen to be glorious. Lord, please, in our hearts, would your name be precious. Please, in our church family, would the name of God be lifted high. We pray that it might be about the honor of your name, not the honor of our name. Lord, we're so sorry for when we try and build a name for ourselves. Lord, let our names fade and let your name be known. Father, we pray your kingdom come. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we live in a world where people have rejected you as king. We live in a world where people do their will, our will, not your will. And Father, we see the the pain of that all around us. And Father, we cry to you, please let your kingdom come. Father, please let people see Jesus as the true King. We pray that people might turn and put their trust in Jesus as the King. Come to Him and find rest. Come to Him and find this kingdom that is beyond all other kingdoms. Father, we pray for our government, that they might have wisdom as they lead, but that they might humble themselves before you as the great King. And that they might seek your kingdom. Father, we pray particularly with the vaccine rollout and so much in the news at the moment. Lord, we pray please for justice in our world. We pray that those who are poorer would not be disadvantaged and that the rich would not exploit the poor. We pray that the vaccine might be dealt with fairly. Father, we pray that there would be a sense of justice, that you would raise up leaders who would stand for what is true and what is right. We pray you'd give our government courage to do that and that you'd give us as your church courage that your will, not ours, might be done. Father, please give us each day our daily bread. Lord, we depend on you for everything. You're the provider of everything that we eat. You're the provider of the very air that we breathe. Father, we thank you for all that you give us. And Lord, for those of us who are particularly anxious at the moment about provision and and perhaps finances or where we're going to live or where we're going to meet as a church or, or what we're going to do, that Father, we would know you as the God who's the provider. Lord, give us today what we need for today. And please forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. Lord, we have fallen short of you. We've 
failed in many ways. We thank you that with Jesus there is forgiveness. And we pray that as we receive that forgiveness, we would extend that forgiveness to others. Please lead us not into temptation. Please deliver us from evil. Please would you guide us in paths of righteousness. Please would you keep us from walking down those paths that we know are wrong, but that so often are attractive to us. Lord, this week we will face all sorts of temptations. And we pray that we would be a people who say to you, our great God, our heavenly Father, Lord, lead us in the right way. Please keep us from walking down those paths that are wrong. And Lord, we ask that all of this would be for your glory because the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever. It is all yours. It all belongs to you. It's all for you. And we want to live our lives for your glory and your glory alone. Lord, we pray these things not in our own righteousness, but because you have called us to pray. You've invited us to pray. And you've given us a name, the name of Jesus, by which we can pray and know that our prayers are heard. So Lord, we bring all these anxieties, these thoughts, these concerns to you. And we say, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, please, would you hear these prayers? Amen. Amen. Well, we're um, going to come now to Hosea chapter 11, um, which if you have a Bible, it'd be great to have open. Um, Hosea chapter 11, um, I've been very much looking forward to getting to this Sunday because Hosea chapter 11 really is the, the, the high point of the book of Hosea. This book which started with the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, chapters 1 to 3, that this, this marriage of unfaithfulness which pictured the God and his people, the, the God of covenant love with his people. And then in chapters 4 and 5, do you remember, we saw the charge that God has against his people. He spoke to his people and he said, you've been unfaithful to me, you've chased off after other gods. Then in chapter 6, there was that call, come on, let's go back to God. But the people couldn't go back to God because there was a problem deep, deep in their hearts. It was going to need something more radical than just, oh, let's go back. And then last week, we saw chapters 8, 9, and 10, chapters that spell out the, the punishment, the judgment that God will bring against his people because of their sin. And then you get to chapter 11. And this is where the thing changes. And what we're going to do is we're going to listen to Hosea chapter 11 and be read. If you've got it open in front of you, that'd be great. But we're going to listen. Some, some of the um, guys on the creative team at Globe Church have put together um, a reading of this for us. So I'm going to invite you to listen carefully and enjoy these words. And then we'll seek to unpack them and understand what they're saying in just a moment. God's love for Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them 
with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refused to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. up Ephraim how can I hand you over Israel how can I treat you like Adma how can I make you like Zeboim my heart has changed within me all my compassion is aroused I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Why don't we pray? Father, we've listened to this word and it is beautiful. And we ask that now by your spirit, you'd help us to really understand what it means. Help us to hear these words by the power of your spirit as the very word of God spoken for us. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the best painting that you have ever seen? I don't know if you're the sort of person who likes to go to a, an art gallery and browse the pictures, but what's the most beautiful painting you've ever seen? I want to suggest that if Hosea chapter 11 were a painting, it would be the most beautiful painting in the world. Because in this chapter, <coughs> in this chapter, God paints for us a self-portrait of himself. You might have noticed as it was read that in chapter 11 of Hosea, God speaks primarily now about himself. He has spoken about Israel. He's spoken about the way that Israel had been unfaithful. He's spoken about what they are like, the, the morning mist and the burning oven and those images. He's spoken about Israel, but in chapter 11, he turns to talk of himself. This is who I am. And it's as if God takes a paintbrush and he paints for us a portrait. And you get that phrase right at the end in verse 9, where God says, I am God. 
and not a man, the Holy One among you. God says, I want you to know who I am. I want you to see the portrait that I have painted of myself for you. God is showing us what he's like. And the reason that this matters so much is because often we get a very distorted view of God. We, we can easily end up with a portrait of God that is not accurate. It's as if God paints his portrait, but we get our paintbrush. And we say, no, I'm going to paint my own portrait of God. And what happens is rather than listen to the beautiful intricacy of the portrait that God has painted, instead, we end up with something we've created. That's what God says right at the end of chapter 11 has happened in Israel. So look at the very end of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 12. The next verse after the reading we've just heard, it says this. Ephraim, remember that's God's people, another word for Israel. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit. God says, I've given you this painting of who I am, but what Israel has done is surrounded me with lies. They've they've painted a different portrait of who I am. And you know, all this unfaithfulness that we've seen in the last few weeks, it all grows out of a distorted view of who God truly is. If we surround him with lies and deceit, then we will find ourselves becoming unfaithful to him. So rather than look carefully at the two true portraits that God has painted, instead with our big stubby brushes, we paint our own pictures. And the pictures that we paint make it easier then to reject him. So look, if you can paint a picture of God as a bit mean, a bit of a spoil sport, a bit of a killjoy, someone who just wants to stop you having fun, he's got all these rules that aren't really that good. But as soon as you've painted this picture of God as a spoil sport, it becomes much easier then to reject him. We surround him with lies, and the lies enable our unfaithfulness. Because once we've painted God as a spoil sport, then we will reject him and we'll go looking for gods that will let us do what we want. We'll go looking for gods who will feed our pleasure and make us feel good and give us permission to live exactly the ways we want. You see, if you distort who God truly is, it will lead to unfaithfulness. Or perhaps it's not a spoil sport. Perhaps the picture that we have painted in our minds is of God as a power-hungry dictator, a kind of egomaniac. But as soon as you've painted him as some power-hungry God, it becomes much easier to distrust him and to suspect that actually he's out to harm you. And then obedience to that sort of God sounds like slavery and servitude. And so we are unfaithful to that God and we look for a God who's slightly less demanding. We look for gods who will flatter us, who will soothe our ego, gods who will let us be free. You see, if our view of God gets distorted, it will lead to unfaithfulness. 
Or if you can paint God as uncaring and distant, then it becomes easier to push him away and look for comfort in gods who seem more immediate and near. Other gods that make us feel good about ourselves and affirm all that we want to be. Well, God doesn't really care anyway. He's distant. I never hear from him. I don't really know him. And so our distorted view of God leads to unfaithfulness. Or perhaps if you can paint God as unreal and irrelevant. Something vague and insubstantial. Perhaps not even there at all. Well, then you can look for something else that gives you life and meaning and purpose. We want something real, something solid, not these fairy stories about some Father Christmas in the sky. We want something real, so we look for gods that are more immediate and physical, whether that be statues or buildings or possessions or people. And so it has always been the case that humanity has surrounded God with lies and deceit, and that has led to our unfaithfulness. That's what you see right back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when human beings first reject God. Why do they reject God? Well, the serpent comes and says, did God really say you can't have any fruit from any tree in the garden? That was the first paintbrush, the first stubby paintbrush saying, he's just a spoil sport. He's just power hungry. He's just jealous. And a distorted view of God will lead to unfaithfulness. So do you know what we desperately need this afternoon? We need to get a high-definition, crystal clear view of who God truly is. We need to let God show us his self-portrait so that we might be faithful to him. You do sometimes see, don't you, in the news horrific sculptures that have been made of famous people. You know, celebrities, oh, we made you a sculpture, and it just looks awful. <laughs> this is what human beings do to God. Well, there's that, that moment um, when, when children have to make a drawing of themselves to put on a tea towel. Did anyone else have tea towels at school? You know what I mean? And um, every kid draws a picture of themselves to put on the tea towel, and the tea towel goes home. And it's an genuinely, I tell you, I speak as a parent. It's a terrifying moment when you get the tea towel. You think, what has my child drawn? And you're looking at the others. You know, there's Jennifer. She's got a fully formed face and hair, you know, hair and bows in her hair. It's very impressive. And then you're looking for yours, and it's like, you've drawn a circle with sticks. What is that? <laughs> and there's this kind of, It's easy for us to sort of distort. Well, here's the point right this afternoon. Will we let God show us who he truly is? Not some distortion, not some stick figure, not some pathetic, twisted version, but actually God for who he says he is. This is chapter 11 of Hosea. And I want to ask you, will you let this chip away at your vision of God? Will you let this chip away at the portrait that you have painted wrongly for yourself? Will you let God scrape away the paint and show you who he truly is? That's what we need. 
And I'm going to show you four features of this portrait I want us to particularly focus in on. Four truths about God that I hope will help to correct our distorted paintings. And then, at the end, I'm going to show you a hidden feature in this portrait. You know those moments when you suddenly discover the artist has hidden something. And you know, oh, that's so cool that someone, they've hidden something in their painting to be worked out and to be seen. That's here too. But we'll get to that right at the end. So here, let's, let's, we're just going to work through and we're going to see um, what, what God says he truly is. And the first thing, the first kind of feature I want us to see in this painting, this self-portrait, is an intimate father. Um, Have a look how he says, um, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Simple. I mean, it's a simple little statement. Oh, but there's so much about God in that, isn't there? God reminds his people of the early days when you were just a child, Israel, when as a nation you were newly formed. Back in the early days, And God says, I loved him. Now, here's the danger, right? The danger is we go, oh, great, yes, all right, love. I I know about love. I've experienced that sort of thing. Um, And so uh, I'm just going to project everything I know about love onto God. No, you've got to remember, Hosea, God says, I am God, not a man. So before we project onto God all our human experiences of love and say, oh, God must love like I love, when God says love, he must mean what I mean. No, instead, we need to let God show us what he means, and then we need to learn from God what it truly means to love. It has to be that way round. And when God says, I loved him, he's not talking about a gooey emotional feeling. God was not swept off his feet by Israel. That doesn't happen to God. That's not the sort of love we're talking about. That's the sort of love human beings experience. In fact, you know, that's the sort of love that the Greek gods showed. Capricious, fickle, could be unreliable, would be wooed by something or some... One came along and swept them away. They fell in love. God doesn't fall in love. That's human language. Because God's love is not primarily a feeling, it's a decision. It's a choice that flows out of the very heart of God's love because God is in his very essence love. It's who he is. And you might say to me, well, this isn't quite as romantic. It doesn't sound as romantic as human love. Yeah, I fell in love and da-da-da. No, but this is a better love than that. Because it's a love that is reliable and faithful and solid. So back in the early days, God did not look at Israel and find himself hopelessly falling in love with Israel. He looked at Israel and he made the decision to love them. Israel, I will love you. That's what he means when he says, I loved him. And his love was seen in his action. 
So look at the second half of verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What, is, what does love look like for God? Not a feeling, but an action. God did something. His people were slaves in Egypt, and out of Egypt God called to them, and God brought them out of Egypt. That's what love looks like. It is action. It does something. It's about decisions and actions more than feelings and passions. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that Israel is called God's son. Back in Exodus um, chapter 4, don't worry about turning to it, but back in Exodus chapter 4, when God's people are slaves in Egypt and God takes this man Moses who's going to bring Israel out, this is what um, Moses is told to tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. You see, right from the beginning, the way that Israel were to relate to God was as a father. Did you see the image has shifted slightly now? Because back at the start of Hosea, we said it was husband and wife, husband and bride, right? Now we're father and son. But these images are here so that we might know who God is, what God is truly like. And as firstborn, they are heirs of all God's promises. They're the ones who will inherit all that God has promised. They will inherit the land. They will inherit the nation. They will inherit all that God says. And through them, all the nations will be blessed. It is a precious and intimate thing that God should say to this nation, you're my son. This is adoption, right? This is God adopting this nation to be his. Now let me, let me just keep going with the paintbrush, okay? Because the painting gets even more vivid now. The, the language that God uses gets richer and deeper as he explains what it means to be the father. We're going to come back to verse 2 in a second. Look at verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Can you see it? Can you see the portrait? God says, I'm the father who took Israel by the arms and taught them to walk. A father with their toddler. Not an army sergeant barking orders at a fallen soldier. A soldier's fallen on the ground, get up! Private, I can't get, get up. Not like that. But a father who stoops down and takes them by the arms and lifts them as they wobble and totter along. A father watching them, cheering when they manage a few steps. He walked. And rushing forward when they stagger and fall. Do you see how intimate this is? This is what God says he's like. God says, my relationship with Israel, my people is like that. It's that close. I took them by the arms and helped them walk. And then verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. God has tied himself to his people. Again, just thinking back to that imagery of of parents. I don't know if your parents ever tied you to them. We had reins for our kids. Like little um, 
reins that you strapped them into and you held one end. And my guess is at times it was um, frustrating. But that rein, that piece of rope, wasn't really rope, rope sounds a bit more dramatic. <laughs> that, that tie between us was a sign of our affection and our love. It meant I am, I'm with you. And when you fall, I'm there to catch you. And when you run towards danger, I'm there to stop you. I'm with you. I didn't have reins for any of the other kids running around the park. I mean, I was bothered about them. If they fell over, it was like, oh, shame, they've fallen over. But my kid, they were on the end of my reign. Because I loved them. And here is God who led and guided his people through physical cloud in the sky and fire at night. He was with his people, Israel. Do you remember Israel? Do you remember what it was like when you were a child? Do you remember me teaching you to walk? Do you remember how I led you and guided you and tied myself to you? I wonder, is this chipping away at your portrait of God at all? Does your portrait of God have a God who comes that close? Who comes that near? Look at verse, the end of verse 4. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Can, can it get any closer than that? This is not an equal partnership. Right? This is a father and son. You see, Israel is utterly dependent on God. It's not that God needs Israel. Israel needs God. It is God who loves Israel. And that is how God treated them. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And you know what? God hasn't changed. And in the person of Jesus... God has come so close to us. He's come close to you if you're one of his children. If you're someone who through Jesus has become part of God's family, he takes you by the arms and he helps you to walk. He has tied himself to you with cords of love. That's who he is. God is not interested in keeping your arm's length. His love is intimate and close. Is that what your picture of God looks like? Or do you see God more as distant? Perhaps a God who makes demands of you. Perhaps a God who shakes his head when you fall over. A God who tuts at you when you make a mistake. That's not the picture God gives for us. It's not God's self-portrait. God's portrait is that as you wobble and as you stagger and as you struggle, he's there to catch you, to hold you. The father doesn't get frustrated with their child wobbling. He's right there to catch them. Genuinely, just stop for a second right now. Is that how you view God? Do you think that that is how God treats you? Do you think that you have that sort of a relationship with God? Because that is God's self-portrait. And if we're going to stay faithful to him, we need to understand who he says he is. Here's the second big thing. 
Firstly, we saw he's an intimate father. Secondly, he's a grieved father. Let's go back to verse 2, which we skipped over. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. Do you hear the pain in that? The more they were called, the more they went away from me. You've got to hear the grief in that sentence. You've got to let that sentence chip away at your wrong picture of what God is like. He's not a force that is detached. He is a father who is grieved. Because Israel, this firstborn son, this son who he taught to walk, this son who he lifted to his cheek and he bent down to feed, this son who is so precious and so delightful to him, grows up to be a prodigal son. Grows up to be a son who turns away. And as he sends them prophets and warnings and blessings, the more he calls, the more they go. Can you see the painting? Can you see Israel walking down the road away from God? Can you see God standing and watching as they walk away? Now, if God was a failed father we might understand why Israel would walk away. If God were an absent father, then Israel could hardly be blamed. If God had abused or neglected or failed Israel, then we could imagine why they might walk away. But God has loved them and he's taught them and he's healed them and he's led them and he's stooped down to them and he's fed them. And still they walked away. Why would they do that? Because they prefer to chase other gods. This is nothing less than heart-wrenching betrayal. It's hard to see it any other way. And that is why verses 5, 6, and 7 say they will suffer God's punishment. They will go back to Egypt. That is back to slavery. They will be ruled over by Assyria. You see, that place that God rescued them from, they will return because God is not some weak victim. He is a loving father. He will not pander to his people. He will punish. And as we see this portrait, you see, we need to understand that when humanity walks away from God, when Israel, God's people, walk away from him, it grieves God. It causes him pain. Does your portrait of God show you that? See, I think the problem is, often we tend to think of sin as horizontal. So sin is about the things I do to other people and the things that I do in this world and I I need to just not be naughty. You know, the whole mantra of our world, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Well, what we're being shown here is that sin is profoundly vertical. God is bothered about our sin. He is grieved by our sin. I've never done any bricklaying. 
But my basic assumption with bricklaying is that if you are a bricklayer who is only bothered about horizontal, you're going to be rubbish as a bricklayer. Because you need to be straight horizontally, but you also need to be straight vertically. Because it's no good building a nice straight wall if all the bricks are in line horizontally, but the whole thing's leaning 45 degrees to the left. That's not a good wall. And I think as Christians, what we can often tend to do is forget the vertical element in our behavior. We forget what our sin is doing to God. We forget what our sin is provoking within God. You know, God is grieved by our sin. One of the best examples of this um, in in the Bible is in Genesis um, 39, where a man called Joseph is tempted to sin. He's tempted to um, sexual sin, to sleep with a woman who's not his wife. And, and he says this, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You see, there's a man who understands that there is a horizontal and a vertical element to sin. And one of the reasons that we so often sin and we fail and we get tempted and we, we give in to temptation again and again is because we forget that God is grieved by it. We think he's not bothered. We think he doesn't see. We think he doesn't mind. We think it's not a big problem. And yet God, we're being shown in Hosea chapter 11, is grieved. The more I called out to them, the, the more they went away from me. Here is one of the key ways that we should learn to fight sin by understanding our relationship with God. Where are you tempted to walk away from God? Even this week, where are you tempted to walk away from Him? Do you see the grief? Do you see the pain? Do you see the right punishment that God says he will bring on his people Israel. That's the second thing. Here comes the third thing. And this is really the most surprising verse in the whole of um, Hosea. He is the intimate father. He is the grieved father, but he is the compassionate father. Just look at verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those are extraordinary verses. These are so daring. It's like you're looking into the very heart of God himself. You're seeing something going on within the very heart of God. As God says, I will punish my people because they have gone astray from me. And then at the very same time, he says, how can I give you up? It's an extraordinary moment. It is such a surprise. We've got to see this shift. We've got to feel this shift. We've got to have a portrait of God that is able to see and to, to know that this is what our God is like. Now, let's be really careful. This doesn't mean, you know, God's suddenly gone soft. You know, that God suddenly goes, oh, I tell you what, let's not worry about it. 
No, God hasn't gone soft. God doesn't change. It's not like God says, oh, let's forget about sin. No, it still really matters. It still really grieves him. And yet, because God is not just the God of justice, he's also the God of love, he has this overwhelming compassion that flows out of him. And so you see this almost tension within God. There is no tension within God because he's perfect. But this wrestle within God, but there is no wrestle within God because he's perfect. But God is trying to show us what he's like. He's trying to say, you need to know my heart. My heart is for you. My heart is compassion. It's a huge moment. And these rhetorical questions in verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? The answer to them is all the same. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. Not because God is emotionally weak, but because God is covenantally strong. Because God is committed to his people with an absolute unbreakable promise that he cannot break. So his compassion flows out of his covenant promises he's already made. This isn't God being inconsistent. This is God being absolutely consistent with who he is and his very nature, which is to show compassion. Adma and Zeboam are two places that were destroyed in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, how can I do that to my people? How can I do that to the people that I promised to love? I can't. And it's as if the fate of humanity hangs on this reality. Is God about to destroy Israel? No. He can't. Because his heart is changed and his compassion is aroused. Those are powerful words. That's how God feels about his people. He is full of compassion. He sees our need and he acts for us. If you have any sense that God is kind of disinterested and disapproving and distant from you, let this self-portrait show you differently. His heart is moved towards compassion for you. That's what he's like. I think so many of us live with a sense that we're under God's disapproval. We we feel as though we've got to be strong and pull it all together. We've got to prove that we can do it. We've got to show that we're okay. And you know what? Some of us have had human fathers who've made us feel like that. I, I understand that. I understand that for some of us, our experience of human fathers is exactly that sense of disapproval or that sense of being absent. But in God's portrait of himself, he says, that is not the sort of father I am. I'm a father whose heart bursts with compassion, overflowing. I don't want to steal the thunder from... um, this week's focus, but this week in focus, we're going to look at what this really looks like in the parable of the prodigal son. I'm deliberately staying away from it because it's so 
beautifully portrays it, but I'm going to leave that for you to explore in small group. Make sure you get to small group this week if you can, because it's going to be fab to be able to explore this in greater detail. This is what God is like. Is that, is that how you see him? Is that your portrait of him? And then the fourth feature, after we've seen this compassionate father, is a powerful father. You see, look what, look what he says from verse 9. He says, I will not carry out my fierce anger. Despite the, the, the sin of the people, despite the grief that it's caused God, God says, no, no, my compassion, I, I will not punish. I will not devastate. I'm God, not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. And here's the great promise. This is what we've been longing for in Hosea. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. Get that in your portrait of God. The God who roars. When a lion roars, that is a powerful, earth-shattering thing. It is a sound that can be heard for miles around. It's a sound that demands to be heard. And when God, the Father, roars, He gathers His children in. And they come to Him. They come trembling. They come from Egypt, the place of slavery, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves, weak, battered and bruised because they've experienced this judgment. But they come back and God says, and I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. This is what God's like. Even to his rebellious, wayward people who have walked away from him and who've grieved his heart, his compassion is aroused. He calls them back and he says, let me settle you back in your homes. This is what God is like. Is that the God you know? But I did say there was one secret in this um, chapter, which I just want to deal with quickly as we finish. And that is back in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Some of you will recognize that verse from somewhere else. Some of you will know that that verse is quoted in the Christmas story. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew takes that verse and he applies it to Jesus. Because when Jesus was just a little baby, he had to run away from um, Herod, he wanted to kill him, and they went down to Egypt with Mary and Joseph. And Matthew says, oh, that happened because out of Egypt I will call my son. And God is the one who has sent, who has sent the true Israel. You see, this Israel, the, the, the Israel that we've read of in Hosea, could not be the Israel that God needed them to be. They could not be the son that God needed them to be, to be the blessing to the world. There was always going to need to be another Israel, another son. And here he is, out of Egypt, I will call my son. That is the true Israel, the new Israel. That is Jesus. Jesus who never chased after other gods. Jesus who never chased after idols. But now think of this Jesus, this true Israel, in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. Think of him praying to his father. 
Lord, please take this cup from me. And now hear these words. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, when God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? Do you not think God the Father was saying that over his son? His treasured son in the garden? Do you not think the Father, as he saw his son sweating drops of blood in agony in Gethsemane, saying, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Do you not think the heart of the Father was saying, how can I give you up, Jesus? How can I hand you over, my precious son? How could I make you like Adma as a bone? And yet that is exactly what God chose to do. He chose to hand over his son. He chose to give up his perfect son to death on the cross because it was the only way he could save us. And that's the secret that Hosea's readers could never have seen. They could never have known that. But now we do. And we can understand that this whole chapter only makes sense because Jesus has come. This chapter only makes sense. How can God show me compassion? How can God take me by the hands and make me walk? How can God forgive my sin? How can God not bring disaster against me? How can God roar and me come to him? Well, only because of Jesus. And you know what? When Jesus was held up on the cross, that was the lion's roar. That was it. Jesus held up on the cross is God's roar to the nations. When Jesus was lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. And this afternoon, he still roars. He still roars far and wide to anyone who will hear. To all who will hear, come. Come from the nations. Come from your other gods. Come from the places where you've walked away. He roars to you who right now are choosing to walk away from him. Who are choosing to live for something else. You've got a wrong view of God and so you're just. You're walking away and right now Jesus lifted up on the cross roars to you and says, come back. Come back, my precious child, come back. This is the, this is the portrait of God. We need to stop. We need to sing and finish and be on Zoom and all that. But I wonder this afternoon, do you see him? Do you see how intimate, how close he comes? Do you see how grieved he is by our sin? Do you see how compassionate he is, even in the face of our rebellion? Do you see how powerful he is when he roars and he calls you home? Let's pray that God would help us to see who he truly is so that we would be faithful to him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this afternoon for this portrait you've given us. And Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we paint other pictures. We have other ideas of what you're like. Lord, thank you that you've shown us your intimacy, your grief, your compassion, and your power. Lord, we pray that we might come and know you as you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen.